and welcome to our fourth episode in our series, Hear Her, Pioneers in International Health. I'm Amber. And I'm Tista. Well, hello August. I'm not quite sure how we've got here. It's been such an exciting month for us as the Sandy Sisters with so, so much going on. And listeners, you mightn't be aware, but Tista and I haven't actually been together in person since the creation of Sandy Sisters came <laughs> to be. But last week, we got to see each other in person for a big overdue in-person catch-up, and it was a total treat. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't believe it's been 18 months, um, but it was just the best to finally see and hug you in the flesh, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> and the Prosecco was definitely flowing. It was, it was. <laughs> But it's not just us with good news. Our Sanyu sisters family have also been celebrating a range of successes this month. So please do head over onto our social media platforms to learn more. Um, We've been absolutely overwhelmed with the support and response that we've had following episode three with Franca Cade, um, who was the president of the International Confederation of Midwives. And we are absolutely thrilled to now feature on the PMNCH website, And we've gained the support of many more inspirational female global leaders, including Helen Clark, ex-Prime Minister of New Zealand, and Kim Campbell, ex-Prime Minister of Canada. It's incredible. And we really value each one of you who've taken the time to listen to the podcast, to engage with us online, to share our work, and bring so many new faces into the Sanya Sister community. So we just want to say, again, a huge thank you to all of you. And this month, we launched our very own Sanya Sisters YouTube channel where you can find videos from friends around the world sharing their work within global maternal and newborn health. So head over there to check them out. If you fancy sharing what you've been up to, then please get in touch with us at sandnewsisterspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We'd really love to hear from you. In this month's episode, Amber sat down to chat with the wonderful Wendy Graham, Professor of Obstetric Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So let's hear what Wendy has to say. This episode, I am thrilled to have with me Professor Wendy Graham. I know she's going to be encouraging and have some pearls of wisdom for all of us. Wendy's a professor of obstetrics and epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Emeritus Professor at the University of Aberdeen. Wendy's a long-standing champion in maternal health and her focus has been on quality improvement of maternity services alongside healthcare-associated infections in mothers and newborns in low- and middle-income countries. Her work has spanned the globe, and she's worked alongside numerous research groups and governments in a bid to see improvements in maternity care. She sits on many panels as an expert advisor, including the World Health Organization, the Department for International Development, the Medical Research Council, and the Wellcome Trust. She's the co-founder of the Soapbox Collaborative, which I'm sure we might be hearing more about in this episode. And rightly so, she was hailed a maternal health hero by the Ethiopian government a few years back. Wendy, it's so good to have you with us and thank you for giving us some of your time today. Thank you very much, Amber, and the pleasure is all mine. I I really look forward to this interview. Wonderful. So if we journey back to the beginning then, it would be great to hear how you started out and where did your passion for maternal global health come from? I I knew you were going to ask this question and I had a sort of a simple answer. I I was listening to Lenka Bonova's fantastic recording and she referred to a sort of personal incident that made her think about her journey. And I can't actually point to any one thing. So um, I started my early work at Sheffield University and then went on to Oxford University. But I think the the trigger for me remaining in the area of low and middle income country maternal health research 
was when I went to Botswana. Um, this was at the end of the 1970s, the beginning of the 1980s. This was at a time when HIV AIDS was starting to emerge in, in Southern Africa. And I was out there looking at the sort of obstetric pathways for women um, in and around uh, the sort of capital city of Haberoni, the capital city, and working in remote and rural areas. And I think I was struck by so many things about access to care. I mean, Botswana is not a, a very populated country. Um, most of the population live down the east side of the country. But inland, if you move into the Kalahari area, mm -hmm. um, there are remote distances that women go. So access to care was really striking for me. But I think the thing that then started me on what I would call my sort of lifelong journey around demonstrating measurement of maternal health was the sort of how many events, both births and deaths, maternal deaths, occurred silently. Um, this sense that events unrecorded, if you spoke to families, you found out about them, um, but they were often missing in registers, you know, what happened to a woman after she went home. This real sense that there was a, a burden related to pregnancy and childbirth that was not being fully captured, sometimes within the facility, with the nature of, of hospital records, but also before if women didn't come to facilities and also when they went home afterwards. And I think that really triggered this lifelong interest in, you know, what, it, what you count is what you do. You know, counting measurements sounds very dry, but we neglect so many things by either not measuring them at all or by measuring them in a particular way. So I think... I think my that journey, that, that time in Botswana um, was incredibly insightful and the issues of quality of care, access to care and the importance of recording events and care really struck me. And, th and that was the trigger, I suspect. Wonderful. That's really, really interesting. If you can tell us a little bit more, perhaps from being even an undergraduate to where you are now, what have been some of those main points along that academic journey for you to get to where you are now? Yes, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I, I, this idea of we've all have turning points, you know, from childhood onwards, really, mm -hmm. things that, that sort of hopefully uh, take you in a particular direction. And I, I can see some sort of turning points when one could have gone one way or the other, you know, in, into something more clinical or into something more epidemiological. And I suppose I think for many people who who, who juggle with that decision, for me, I think it was the issue about either working at an individual level um, versus working with whole populations. And very early on, and I think, again, I think it went back to the being in Botswana, was this sense of that by moving in the direction of sort of epidemiology, that you would be looking at larger problems, um, mm -hmm. populations. And, and that, again, was an intrigue for me. It was the feeling that, yes, you, you individual care to individual women is important, but actually some of the solutions that we need to sort of work on are at a sort of programmatic, strategic level. And it, it's, quite, it's quite intriguing to make that transition from sort of the individual to that population level. And I was very lucky in that when I developed the sisterhood method for measuring maternal mortality, I, I can perhaps say a little bit more about that, that immediately uh, sort of took me into an arena of policymakers and program managers, uh, much less than, than sort of clinical workers. It, it took me to a level of decision making that I also found very intriguing. Mm -hmm. So basically, after sort of finishing at Oxford, I, I went to the London School of Hygiene in 1985, and, and I regard the London School of Hygiene as, as the mothership. <laughs> 
um, uh, clearly like Liverpool and, and, and UCL. I mean, there are many other, of course, around the world, fantastic institutions. For me, the London School of Hygiene has been my home, as I said, my, my mothership. Yeah. Although I was lucky in Oxford that I, I was surrounded with people who did have a global vision, um, both in the medical school and in institutes like the Queen Elizabeth House, that, that when I went to the London School, to all of a sudden be surrounded with people walking walking the corridors, all thinking about issues of low and middle income countries. That I found so exciting. I mean, to people looking at health systems or health economics. So the London School of Hygiene was, was definitely a really important point. Um, I'd had the time in Botswana. I knew that I'd gone back to the Oxford Regional Health Authority, but I knew that my heart really lay in work overseas. Opportunity came to go to the London School, I grabbed it. So that was a, a big opportunity. Shortly after that, um, there was the launch of the Global Safe Mother Initiative, 1987. And what struck me then was, you know, this, this call for more attention to maternal health and, and this neglect of maternal mortality. And it really made me think, you know, the sort of here we go again, we've got a subject which we only know a certain amount about. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to be based with a group, including the wonderful late Professor William Brass, who was a very eminent demographer, a medical demographer. Mm-hmm and called one of the brass rubbings um, by working alongside him, uh, a tiny, tiny bit of his insight rubbed off on me. Yeah. He and I developed this method for estimating maternal mortality called the sisterhood method. So that was developed in sort of 87, 88, um, published um, eventually in, in 89. The first field trial was done in the Gambia and cost just over 1,500 pounds, such a small amount of money. But that um, the appetite for the method and the journey that took me on was extraordinary. Uh, I look back on that. I mean, I was still young. I was still relatively new in my exposure to low and middle income work. But I had a chance to go to many different countries where they were thinking about using the method to work with people in country that were, were wanting to use the method and adapt it locally. Mm-hmm. And it really took off. But in particular, it propelled me. I would say probably quite early into conversations with the World Health Organization, UNFPA, with census bodies, with the CDC. So I was, uh, I, I found myself in an, in a um, sort of audience and, and groups that were thinking strategically and at a population level, and that eased my entry into thinking about things at a population level. So I think that was incredibly important. Wow. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, if you want to briefly share with us maybe what the sisterhood method actually is. So the sisterhood method is what's called a a method of indirect estimation. And it's a way of estimating the level of maternal mortality. And it works on the basis of asking adults about the survival of their sisters. Typically in a household, uh, if you were to ask the, the, the woman who's in the household, her sisters, um, she will have four or five sisters. So every one woman you're speaking to, you're finding out about exposure amongst a larger number of women. And that way, from one individual one respondent, you find out about lots of women. And that overcomes one of the biggest challenges, which is the need for large surveys or large sample sizes to produce a, a, a a stable estimate. After that original method, which went on to be used, the DHS, the Demographic and Health Service, ended it up and adapting it and using it in a particular way. But it has and, and, and does remain the main approach to estimating maternal mortality in many countries that don't have vital registration or don't have any other source 
for estimating the level of mortality. There are many, if I look back on that, there are many things I, I wish I'd done differently. Um, one of them, which I think I'm, I'm now, interestingly, I do sometimes think my career is a bit like Groundhog Day. I sort of coming back to things. Yeah. And literally, in, in, in the last sort of six or seven years, I've been focusing more on infection prevention and control. But actually, since COVID, I've become interested again in, in sort of measurement of outcomes and in particular maternal mortality. And so one of the things I regretted with the sisterhood method is, is and this is a, a funny story, is that it works on the basis of, as I said, adult sisters telling an interviewer that's doing a household survey about how many sisters they've ever had, how many reached 15, how many are alive, how many are dead, and then how many died during pregnancy or in the six weeks after pregnancy. Yeah. Literally four questions. I was so convinced that only women would know about their sisters. And so usually the questions are asked of surveys on, of, on the women's questionnaire. So it's only asked of women about their sisters. Whereas men, the brothers of women, um, will often know about maternal mortality as a cause of death. And I really wish that I had not been biased yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and naive. Um, and at really, we did a little bit of work. And in the Egyptian DHS in 1988, I think, they did actually ask men as well as women. But now we could consider reusing that method um, in some of the rapid surveys that are being carried out and asking uh, men and women about the survival of their sisters. And, and in that way, you know, these large number sample sizes we need. So if anyone's listening out there would like to collaborate with me on a re sisterhood method revisited um, in the context of the COVID pandemic, um, then yes, you know how to find me at the London School. <laughs> You'll have an influx of um, interested, keen academics wanting to get on board. And I just, before I say anything else, I'd like to thank uh, you, Amber and, and Tista, for starting this. I think this is a wonderful way. I mean, I have got no idea, of course, who's going to listen to this, but it's a wonderful way to uh, give us, give individuals a chance to talk about their work, but, but also to reach those parts that uh, now the technology can reach. So whoever's listening out there, I'm delighted that you are listening. <laughs> I know we are as well. Sometimes I'm like, oh, we're just two girls who had an idea and here we are. But, you know, that really was our, our hope from the podcast that um, we would share individual story, but also on a bigger level, get people thinking about these big issues, you know, like near misses, sort of those invisible and silent deaths and stuff um, to really have a voice for people who don't have a voice. So thank you for your very kind words. Just touching on COVID then, how has COVID influenced your work? You mentioned a little bit about possibly revisiting things, but if you want to tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to specifically. Okay, well, well a little bit of the journey to get to the COVID bit might be helpful. Um, is that, uh, as I said, for a lot of my, my career, which is, what, 35 years now, so, so a long, long while, um, I've been focusing on sort of issues around measurement, um, measurement of quality of care, um, measurement of outcomes, morbidity and mortality. Um, and uh, was at the school for 10 years and then realised I also wanted to connect with some of the measurement issues in the UK. So I went up to the University of Aberdeen uh, to a maternity hospital. So I was actually based back in a, in a unit above the labour ward. So reconnected with um, work in the UK and, and mm -hmm. did a, a pieces of research, randomised trials. Um, but um, and, and during that time was uh, responsible for a very large project called the Impact Project, which was funded by the Gates Foundation and, and many DFID and many other agencies from the U UN agencies. Um, and that was a 20 million pound project. And 
was looking at interventions to basically uh, improve, in particular, quality of care at delivery. And out of that project, and I have to say, if there's one extra sentence I would say about impact is never again. I mean, fantastic team uh, spread across many countries, Indonesia, Burkina Faso and Ghana in particular. Um, but uh, just a huge responsibility. And this started yes. in the 2000 um, and went on to 2016. So it was a very, very large undertaking. The quality piece was very striking then. The issue of, of poor quality care, um, not the care that providers wanted to provide um, mm-hmm. and not the care that women wanted to receive. And, and that was very, very striking. So measurement quality, very striking out of the impact project. And one particular thing that always struck me in quality improvement and, and quality measurement was how complex it rapidly became and how a bit like uh, we talk about the most important thing to reduce maternal mortality and indeed newborn mortality and, and improve maternal health is a functioning health system. And everyone then glazes over and says, well, that's everything. With quality improvement at one level, it is also it means many things. It's not just the HR. It's not just the, uh, the availability of drugs and supplies. It's not just the demand side, women's, women's uh, wish to attend and, and the respectful care issue. Mm-hmm. It really struck me that there was, a, there was less traction on the whole issue of quality improvement because it was rather overwhelming. Like, well, OK, we need to strengthen the health system, but actually, where do we start? Mm-hmm. Things that was very striking was the aspect of I was interested in infection related deaths and in the work in impact, which showed quality was not um, was not as it as it should be. Quality improvement really also illuminated issues about the environment, how the environment and infection prevention and control could be contributing to the deaths. And of course, we all know Hippocratic Oath first do no harm. So mm-hmm. the very thought that women were going into facilities and receiving care and and obviously for some complications receiving care which prevented their death but also being exposed to risks uh, healthcare associated infections and that that risk really sort of I can only describe it as insulting insulting I felt insulted about that risk yeah I along with many others thought the institutional delivery was the way to try and reduce uh, maternal and newborn mortality respectful uh, care in institutions. I didn't uh, advocate for institutional delivery when the institutions were not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. And when we started to see facilities that really were a risk to women and healthcare providers, I felt quite incensed and started this work around infection prevention and control and uh, with colleagues launched something called the Soapbox Collaborative, which was uh, a small uh, charity which ran between 2012 and we closed it down in 2019. Um, We designed it for obsolescence, um, which is an interesting concept for an NGO. We designed it to achieve a certain certain issue, and that was to raise awareness of hygiene in healthcare facilities, maternity units in particular. And that really uh, opened my eyes. I had to relearn issues around infection prevention and control, principles of infection prevention and control, Um, and issues around environmental hygiene and, and indeed things like microbiology and, and how we can assess the pathogenic load or the burden in the environments. And it taught me so much about what I would say, I don't like the phrase low-hanging fruit. I think first do no harm and ensuring that women and newborns are in facilities where the care, of course, is respectful. And to me, hygiene is one of the, you know, if a unit falls on hygiene, it doesn't meet any quality of care standard. So 
certain extent by focusing on infection prevention and control and the reduction of infection, I thought it would be a way to simplify some of the issues around quality and quality of care. Because as I said, if you don't meet hygiene requirements, women, we know the big survey that was carried out, women, what women want. We know that women specified that hygiene, poor hygiene was something that they really didn't want to face when they go into healthcare facilities. And I also know many healthcare providers who also don't want to face, uh, be providing care in uh, without proper attention to infection. Yes. Prevention. So that, that sort of, that journey, I can say a lot more about that journey, which has been fascinating. Two, I found, again, at a policy level, um, soapbox, we, we ended up sort of falling between the WASH community, which is water, um, sanitation and hygiene, yes, and the IPC community. Um, and you sort of think, well, why aren't those two connected? And, and at the time, a lot, there were almost two silos of conversations about water and sanitation in healthcare facilities and IPC. Uh, to me, those have to be joined up. So we discovered things at a policy and programmatic level that we we provoked. And, and some of you may have seen um, me speaking at uh, one of the side events, the World Health Assembly. I guess that was 2019, I think, um, where the director general came along and I gave him the golden mop, speaking about the importance of hygiene. And Dr. Tedros accepted the golden mop. And, and it, it went viral, as they say, um, not in, in true true viral senses, but, yes. <laughs> but it was a moment to say, you know, we can we can do many things to prevent all the types, all the different types of mortality and chief yeah. to mothers and newborns. Many things need to be attacked. But please let us deal with something that Florence Nightingale and people have known about for centuries. We know that infections can be perpetuated and transmitted through poor hand hygiene practice, poor environments. Let's not be remain in you know, the 1780s. Um, yeah. Alexander Gordon in Aberdeen was the first person before Semmelweis and Oliver Wendell Holmes dis who discovered poor hand hygiene was, a, was one of the reasons, the main reason for the transmission of purple sepsis. So we've known this for so long. So we were doing soapbox and we said we would do it to raise awareness. We developed, a, uh, we worked with cleaners. So this journey of working with cadres I'd never even thought about before was, was fascinating. Amazing new set of colleagues in infection prevention and control, people I'd never had a chance to work with before. Amazing new colleagues in the WASH community, together with our maternal newborn health community colleagues. Real spanning and, and, and a suddenly opening up of a whole set of issues about quality of water, uh, as I said, the issues of microbiology, the whole issue of antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, so we're working on, on all of this and, and, and developed, uh, did a number of studies with fantastic colleagues overseas, working with people like WaterAid, and then along with COVID. Um, and um, if ever there was a demand for some of the work we've done on cleaning, absolutely, um, COVID has changed this we suddenly found that our, our training package for cleaners, which is called Teach Clean, became in, in great demand. And we found lots of people suddenly aware of the fact that, you know, cleaners were, were often not trained, uh, were at risk themselves, but also were at risk of transmitting infections by their poor practice, their lack of hand hygiene, their touching of surfaces, which then clinical hands might touch. So we did a lot of work on hand recontamination. So COVID, it was, I, I mean, I guess everybody's career is full of these strange coincidences. 
But we decided that in 2019, in, in June of 2019, that we had achieved what we set out to do with Soapbox. Um, there was this demand for work on cleaners. We were doing more training and, and research on infection prevention and control. And then, of course, early 2020, along comes this incredible turning of the world upside down. Mm-hmm. And um, it was... With colleagues, we developed a website called Safe Surfaces, which was trying to point out that as hands are only as clean and as good and, and ready for care as the surfaces they go on to touch. So yeah. you do as much hand hygiene. Of course, yesterday was World Hand Hygiene Day. Yes. They do as much correct hand hygiene as you like. But if you then go on to touch a surface to pick up a piece of equipment, um, you may recontaminate. And so my lovely colleague, Georgia Gone and Susanna Wood have done work on hand hide, hand recontamination. So we found ourselves, we found the whole cleaning mantra in high demand and, and wonderful people, Alex Aiken at the school and, and Professor Stephanie Dancer in Glasgow, my microbiology, biologist, we, we suddenly found that what we've been doing in M&H was suddenly clearly relevant to many other wards as well. Yes. So we developed things like illustrated guidelines for cleaning and work with the Red Cross to try and make sure that that although we would train, um, we, we can't train all cleaners, of course, if we provide illustrated guidelines that are obvious, they're pictograms, then maybe they can get out to support other cleaners in other parts of the world. So for me, there's been, yes, I mean, the last year and a half has been incredible in terms of suddenly the, the, the attention on a subject that we thought was very neglected, nothing to do with us, and, 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 but along comes a global pandemic where infection prevention control is, is the number one concern in the community, um, obviously community, transmission in the community, but also in healthcare facilities. So there was that side of things. But what I also ended up doing is I um, volunteered to go back into the clinical area. I Since uh, April of 2020, um, I've been working in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Okay. Just doing one, one sort of one shift a week. Um, and that showed me uh, some of the practicalities of IPC that I had been studying. Yes. I mean, I, I did tweet once about being on a shift where I must have used, I used something like 25 to 30 sets of aprons and gloves. Oh, yeah, yeah. Three or four hour shift. And the doffing just became ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it really, it really gave me a sense of what it's like. And then the real sense for, so I was in a very well-resourced, you know, a really top-class hospital. What is it like for our colleagues that don't have gloves, that don't mm-hmm. have that don't have water or soap my hat I take my hat off to all those health workers obviously yesterday International Midwives Day I mean all those workers around the world that have continued to be there for patients women and and other patients during this um, in the face of poor PPE and poor environmental uh, hygiene you know in terms of water and sanitation so incredible to, and for me to be practicing in these environments and seeing for example deep clean you yeah. know what happens when somebody leaves a particular room that what I call the ghostbusters come in yeah <laughs> in everything um cleaning that I've never had a chance to see in a lower middle income setting there aren't the resources there there isn't the recognition there wasn't the recognition of cleaning but maybe the pandemic has changed it yeah I mean it's such stark contrast isn't it between the settings that yourself and myself find ourselves in and it really is we're so fortunate and so lucky but it really is so commendable 
of our colleagues um, nursing midwifery um, medical staff who really are tirelessly working to keep themselves um, safe but also their patients. I mean I think I think as I said that any uh, the credit that goes to people in country is is enormous. Um, we shone a light on something uh, and then we did our research and we're still carrying on interesting research in Nigeria and Gambia and, 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 and um, in, in, in Tanzania and other countries um, but we then um, we work with our colleagues but the colleagues are there day in day out yeah. in these challenges yeah I, I suppose just the last piece of what the COVID, uh, COVID situation has done to me is it has brought me back to the issue of of uh, missing data, uh, missing voices, missing women. And um, I've gone back to think about how, um, you know, mortality surveillance is not picking up maternal deaths in the way. So we know that there have been incredible changes to maternity services, not women uh, unable to come or not coming to attend services. But what has happened to those women? Yeah. I'm been doing a one a, a rapid systematic review some of some, some wonderful colleagues from Edinburgh um Clara Calvert Jeeva Johns and and Farine Nevea and and we've been we've shown that despite the attention um uh, to covid deaths the actual envelope around maternal deaths is is very is very weak um and, and that we need to know more and then work with colleagues um Mary Kinney and Ashish case at KC a paper coming out next week that shows that massive drops in women attending for care but the question is what has happened to these women the voices of these women are here we go again silent how do we reach those women who didn't come for delivery care who were in antenatal care but didn't come for delivery care do we know what's happened to them so that issue of women's voice and reaching women and finding out about uh, their experiences finding out about the tragic situations so it's taken me back to we if we're going to rebuild services post-covid we need to involve, we need to listen to the providers and we need to listen to women. There's a large proportion of women in many, many countries who've sort of fallen out of the system. Or we need to find a way to reconnect with them and use their voice to, re, to rebuild, to build back better, as they say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's so true. And build a service for women that is, you know, hearing their voice and then and then responding appropriately. It's really, yeah, it'll be an interesting time, I think, post-COVID to see how that, what that looks like. Moving on, I'd love to know, we've been asking all our guests this, one piece of advice that you would give to a young Wendy Graham starting out in global health, what would you tell her? I think, and, and yes, you gave me some preparations, so there's a little bit of thought behind this one, and I think it is never stop learning. Okay. And I think if you remain open and curious, opportunities, you are open then to opportunities. So I, if I had not been curious about infection prevention and control and water and sanitation, I would never have gone on this journey around Soapbox with the Soapbox Collaborative, mm -hmm. been in this position with looking at COVID. So you need to remain, doesn't matter where you are in your career, and I include as, a, as an ancient professor, you <laughs> never stop you you have a you can learn from your uh, you know the colleagues you work with earlier mid career researchers you can learn from students you need to keep an open and curious um, about your subject area and that will keep your passion alive I mean yeah. if I lost my curiosity I, I because at times it does seem overwhelming it does seem like we're climbing an enormous mountain mm -hmm. and then things like the horrible cutbacks in in overseas development. Yes. 
distance and along comes another insult and, and another challenge and you know obviously the global the pandemic but you know if you keep your curiosity alive and be open to learning and asking and that curiosity it will keep that passion you will realize that actually although it seems like another challenge and we might be back at square one that curiosity will make you ask questions, make you ask about, you know, why do we know so little about maternal deaths? We know about COVID deaths, they get reported every day. Be curious and stay curious. That's my short advice. Brilliant. And one final question then. You are certainly a female role model for many, and I'm just feeling so inspired even just chatting to you today but who has been a role model for you well Amber I mean this is the, another question that I, I've been ag- possibly agonizing about I think oh no <laughs> on the face well not painfully don't worry it's, I've had some ibuprofen so it's okay it's, and not too painful but I think it's about this idea of a role model that, that, you know there, there are many many people who are uh, I greatly admire and I have I have learned from and mm-hmm. continue from many of them I mean it's almost like I can ha- if I mention one I feel like I could I have need to mention them all so yeah. um and I think you you sort of need to be a role model to yourself and that's a bit of a strange thing but you do have to keep asking yourself why am I doing this yeah um you, you know keep that keep that curiosity and, and your passion alive because you know if you get cynical about it then, then you can't you can't support the subject of studying. So, so I can think of people who have done fantastic work, so many of them, who have never become cynical about the challenges. And, and I'll just mention the three of them. And, and I, I apologize for all those others that have definitely have kept my, my career alive and, and my, my curiosity and passion alive. And that's Professor Marion Horn in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Elton obstetrician gynecologist, fantastic, fantastic woman who who just combined a career, you know, a mother uh, remained in, did fantastic work in obstetrics in the UK, but also was very interested in overseas work. We worked together in Ghana and Jamaica. Just a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful individual. Dr. Sylvia Deganos in Ghana. I mean, again, somebody I had the privilege to work with over quite a few years, a, a practicing obstetrician in Ghana in very difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Involved at the beginning of safe motherhood at the, at the very beginning um and has just uh, has kept her interest in difficult and and dr liz mason from who who i suspect many people would would mention as well liz is a, a friend and colleague um was the head of the sort of family health section um at mnch um at who and remains a wise a wise uh woman um, that I am lucky enough to still have contact with. But I, I say that and then I immediately say, and everybody else I've had the privilege to work with. The last thing I'd just like to say is a role model is that I also I also would just like to mention my daughters as, as sort of role models. So I have two incredible daughters, Alice and Florence. Alice is a trainee anaesthetist. Mm-hmm. Florence is a paediatric theatre nurse, both in Edinburgh. And I suppose it's a strange reversal to say your daughters are your role models. Um, <laughs> seeing them approach their career, juggling, uh, juggling careers, um, juggling being more than just the person who works, um, is that's what I mean about learning. Um, you can be curious of your colleagues 
and your, your in my case, daughters uh, that are younger than you, that have their life in front of you, and you can admire uh, the way they're grappling with the path they have in front of you, as well as, as, well as people who are perhaps at a, a later point in their career. So look for role models, not just in the older generation. <laughs> Look for role models of the younger generation. And uh, again, I think you, Amber and Tista, have got to, um, uh, are heading, uh, I'm, I'm quite sure already in the way that you're running this series, <laughs> it will be inspiration for people in many different places to try a similar thing in their country. Oh, brilliant. That's great to hear. Thank you so much for sharing. You're definitely a proud mum, definitely a proud friend and a colleague to many. And I just love those pearls of wisdom that you shared with us to never stop learning, um, always stay curious and always be curious. You've shared so much and it really has been fantastic to hear about your journey, the highlights of your career um, and the work that you're doing on that individual level, but also on that big picture level as well. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to hearing the discussion that comes out of this episode. Um, it would be great to get on Twitter and hear from um, listeners. So thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, thank you, Amber. And, and, and thank you for anybody who listens to the podcast. And I really do look forward to hearing your views. Um, I, my career owes so much to all the people I've worked with um, that may listen. Um, and um, thank you very much for this opportunity. <music> Wow, what a woman. Tista, what stood out to you from what Wendy shared? You know, what I really loved about this episode is you really got a sense of who Wendy is. And I don't just mean her tenacity and drive for what she does, but perhaps most importantly, her warmth and approachability. And so I'm really glad that she could be a part of this series. Going back to her early career, it was fascinating to hear more about her experiences developing the sisterhood method to gain quality population data on maternal mortality and outcomes. And I think like some of the listeners at home, I too have analysed the demographic health surveys for my own research. And I never knew that the method for the DHS survey started with Wendy. So that's just absolutely incredible. <laughs> it was also really refreshing to hear her honest reflections when she looked back to the early points in her career that she would have loved to have involved brothers in this process too. And I think that is something we're definitely seeing and hearing about more and more is the pivotal role that husbands, fathers and brothers can play to the health and well-being of women, especially in terms of access and coverage of care. Um, I also loved hearing more about the steps Wendy has taken across her career to identify, as she calls them, the invisible and hidden women through data. And I completely agree that if we want to make real global change to reach every mother and newborn, we need to first know who these mothers and newborns are. And as Wendy says, what you count is what you do. So I think if you look at any of the high-level recommendations in maternal and newborn health, the common thread that underpins them all is this need for more and better quality data. So I think like many of the listeners, this is definitely something I'd want to learn a little bit more about, and I suppose I'm very curious about too. What about you, Amber? What stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you've just shared. There are so many great, great things in there and as you say, so many learning points and things to get curious about. I loved hearing really throughout the series, each of our guests' individual journeys through their career and just seeing how opportunities that have come their way 
have sort of unfolded and opened up the next stage of the journey for them. And Wendy's story um, was just fascinating to hear how, how that has panned out over the years. I think what she shared about the Soapbox Collaborative and exploring hand hygiene further was just incredible. This idea that if facilities can't provide the basics, such as mm. clean water, soap, gloves, PPE in this day and age, um, then they're actually posing a risk to the women that they're intending to look after that come mm. and access care. And I know from my personal experiences in Uganda and those challenges working in low middle income countries, it has always been around this concept, certainly for me, of doing the basics well. And that has to always be our starting point. Mm. And it's the basic things often that are overlooked that are absolutely key to underpinning that safe environment to treat mums, to treat their babies that leads to high quality care. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And also, where is the golden mop? <laughs> As I would... Maybe in Dr. Tedros's uh, office. <laughs> one could only hope. As I think I would love to get my hands on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Wendy's journey and reflections. So please do join us over on Twitter at Sunny Sisters and get connected with the Sunny Sister community. You'll also find us sharing some more of our reflections on episode four across our social media platforms throughout the month. So please be sure to check these out. Absolutely. And next month, Tisa will be with Vanessa Brizuela, a technical officer at the World Health Organization who works in sexual and reproductive health. And we can't wait to hear more from her. Until next time. Mm-hmm.